You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. Uh, for this episode, uh, have the have the pleasure and the and privilege of talking to Jessica McDermott, who wrote a, a, a very important uh, book, uh, study, piece of investigative journalism called The Highway of Tears, uh, which uh, uh, inquires um, into the, the tragedies of missing uh, and murdered indigenous women uh, in British Columbia. And uh, that book came out last year, and we're lucky enough to have her uh, on the podcast to, to talk about that book and also to t- talk to her about um, her, her art and, and her craft and in investigative journalism. Jessica McDermott, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's great to chat with you. Um, I did some research and just saw, you know, your, your works um, in, in research around the world in the continent of Africa. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, the Highway of Tears book. But before we get into some of your the, the recent things that you've written, um, can you describe what you were like uh, when when you were younger? I mean, were you always interested in investigating things or you have a curious mind? Yeah, I think that would be fair to say. I was certainly always a a writer. Um, I think my my brother went to he's a couple years older, so he'd gone to kindergarten, and I think I I could kind of read and write by then, but I would like hassle him when he got home from kindergarten to teach me everything that he'd learned because I was just desperate to be able to read and write. Um, so I was a pretty precocious little kid and was writing novels by the time I was seven or so. They were all about wild horses and evil farmers that would trap the wild horses to sell them to meat markets. And then inevitably there was a a young heroine uh, that would rescue the wild horses and then ride them out into, you know, the wilds and live with the wild horses forever. (laughs) Those those books sound fantastic. (laughs) You know, my mom actually dug one of them out probably 10 years ago but i i finished journalism school by then and you know i was working as a reporter and maybe feeling a little discouraged or like my work had become very much the work of a newspaper reporter and the art part of it had disappeared and she had dug it out and i was i was almost heartbroken because i was like look at what i was doing when i was like so little and now what am i doing my life is over i failed and you know in in the way that i often thought at 24 <laughs> yeah sure sure and um so let's chat about that a little bit i mean so you had the, i mean you saw this huge you know artistic creative kind of expansive maybe younger version or vision of you know what you're creating and then you know, maybe comparing it to a little bit more of the, I'd imagine, some of the difficult work and digging into details and investigating and trying to put this together. Um, uh, what did that moment mean to you? I mean, did it did it end up informing your approach to, to your work, to your investigative writing? Well, I think I, I've always been looking for the place between the sort of the two uh, ideas, one of which started off where I wanted to be a, a novelist. I wanted to write beautiful fiction. And then 
ended up in a career in journalism. And that was largely because I think in my sort of early mid-teens, I got more interested in world events, in history, in um, sociology, and in what was going on around me outside my dreams of running away with wild horses. And I was appalled by what I saw, to be frank. I, I started learning about things like, uh, you know, proxy wars during the Cold War. And just how could this be happening? How could this be sure. happening over and over? And nobody cares. And it was with, you know, all the rage of a 14 or 15 year old. And and it was through that that I came across a book. I think to put my mom in an interview twice, she'll love this. Um, she she had gotten me a book from a chapters bookstore bargain bin, which was written by a, a foreign correspondent, Canadian foreign correspondent named Oakland Ross, called A Fire on the Mountain. And it was sort of a personal account of uh, many of the global conflicts that he had covered as a reporter. And I was incredibly inspired. It really quite literally sort of changed my view on everything. And I was like, foreign correspondent, this is the way to go. Um, so then there was, you know, the long path trying to get there, which ends up being feeling often not very literary or artistic. You know, you work for a city news desk and you get sent out on an assignment and you have eight inches to shove in the basic information and that's sort of it. Um, but that was... You know, what I learned was that was incredible training because you have to become really gymnastics, gymnastic with your words. You don't, I, I realize now looking back, I wrote very long and very flowery and not all that clearly. And so as uncomfortable as it was to, you know, sort of have somebody take a red pen to two thirds of what you had just done, it gave me this incredible awareness of words that I had never had and this, this precision with them. Um, and then, you know, fast forward again, when I was so lucky to get to the, the point where I could do a book, I, I don't, I'm not saying I think I succeeded <laughs> necessarily, um, but I wanted to combine those two things. So combine, you know, a, a literary approach, trying to write something that in places is, you know, beautiful writing combined with a lot of information and facts and, you know, the sort of um, idea of shining a light on, on wrongdoing in hopes that it will be solved and, and put those two together into one place. So my ideal would be, you know, that I, to be a literary investigative journalist. Um, and it's it's a road that I'm on. I don't think I'm there yet. Uh, but, you know, maybe by book three or four, I'll look at it and go, wow, you did it. Well, yeah. And I can see, you know, and, and, and thanks for describing some of you thinking about that. Um, I have a, an episode coming out um, uh, pretty soon with the writer in, in, in Oregon, uh, Benjamin Gorman. And I, I found it quite interesting. And I've had writers on the podcast to, to, to talk about those artistic choices, to talk about the tensions uh, that, you know, that appear, uh, in writing. So I, I want to thank you for, you know, uh, talking about those components. Um, uh, and it, just out of curiosity, in addition to, you know, the importance of writing and, uh, as far as art forms, are there any other art forms that are, are, are significant to you, um, as far as what you enjoy? Um, 
I mean, in in terms of what I do and what I'm good at, I'm totally a one trick pony. <laughs> it's it's writing, um, but I I love pretty much all art. I mean, I I love music. It's a huge part of my life. I've dabbled badly in many instruments, and you know, I always say I'm an enthusiast, not a not a musician. I'm an enthusiast, um, and I really appreciate other people's music. Uh, Kim, for example, who I know you'll speak to. Same thing with photography. You know, I, I've dabbled in it. I go through periods where I get really into it and then I kind of, it sort of disappears again. Um, and then recently, like painting and more sort of visual art has, has become a huge interest. I mean, mainly because of uh, a fellow that I know who does um, sort of impressionist or abstract art uh, and did, he did some paintings of New Orleans and Louisiana, which is one of my favorite places ever. And I just love them so much. And so that's becoming a new interest. Yeah. And, um, well, you are certainly a writer if you love New Orleans that much, right? New Orleans, that's, uh, that's a place for writers. It's a writer's place. Um, it's, yeah, I, uh, I went there in 2005 for like summer or spring break during university. Uh, and they had been, you know, giving credit cards to students in the student union building. So they gave me one, which was, you know, had long lasting repercussions, but at yeah, that time, sure. it meant that I got to go to New Orleans for a week uh, and just completely fell in love with it. And I've been back many times. I, I moved there for, for a period of time and it's, uh, it's somewhere I'll always go back to. I that's that's great to hear, and thanks for sharing that. Um, so uh, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about Highway of Tears, right? Um, uh, can can you tell us uh, can you tell the listeners about you know what led you uh, to the story um, in in just how you entered into this project and what you, your book. Highway of Tears, um, what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was led to the story because I grew up in the middle of it. I grew up in a town called Smithers, which is about halfway along what's now referred to as the Highway of Tears, which itself is about 450 miles of, um, you know, single lane highway through a really remote area in Western Canada. So, Growing up, this was something that happened. Uh, there was several girls that went missing from my hometown. There was girls that went missing from the surrounding towns. And so it was always there. And I, I think a friend of mine actually recently had told me that I was talking about this when she met me, which was when I was 19. I was saying, somebody's got to write a book about it. Somebody's got to do something about it. Um, so it was there for a long time. And in my mid-20s, I'd gone home for a, a visit with my family that still lived there in the summertime, and I was going to do all the research I needed to do to do a book on it then. Uh, this might have been the same trip that I read the first novel I'd ever written, and <laughs> maybe that was the motivation. But uh, I did some interviews with, with some of the, the players. I met some of the families, but I, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't able to do, I didn't have the skills, I didn't have the maturity, I certainly didn't have the time or the resources. Uh, but I, I stayed in touch with people. I kept following it for years and years after as I went and did all sorts of other things and grew up a lot. And um, then reached a point where I was able to go back and do it. So uh, that's what I did. And, you know, the book itself really is... 
it's an exploration of what's happened there, which is, you know, more than a dozen Indigenous women and girls have gone missing uh, from these really small remote towns. And there's been very little response from the public, from the police, from the government. Uh, none of these cases have been solved. And, you know, so that's going back over 30 years. Uh, and so an examination of that and 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 of the question of how does this happen? You know, who's responsible? What needs to be done? How do we prevent this from happening again? What do we do about the fact that it's still happening all across Canada? I mean, in that region specifically, the last year I was working on the book, there were three Indigenous women and girls who went missing. Wow. Uh, and then across Canada, across the United States, this is an ongoing, you know, genocide. And we're not taking the sort of action that, that we should be. And I, I know in uh, having listened to some of your interviews and having um, uh, listened to, to the book um, that there's a lot of, um, you know, even accessing information, accurate information about the, you know, the true scope of the problem and statistics and getting reports is extremely difficult. Um, and I heard you describe the kind of the cultural differences of, you know, the public's response to different races or groups of people when they go missing in indigenous women, those issues being ignored by, you know, maybe a, a white girl, you know, who goes missing and, you know, family wants all the help they, they can, gets a lot of exposure and there's progress on it. Um, that seems so blatant uh, in, in, in the cases that I've read about through your book and in the United States. For you investigating this, what was your response or, or how deeply frustrating was it to, to see that, just that disparate treatment um, in those cases? Oh, incredibly frustrating. Um, like you want to pull your hair out and kick things. And it, it, it brought me back to being 15 and looking and saying, how could this happen? Um, and, you know, that's that's for me a relative outsider. And for for the families and friends and communities of these girls and women, it's it's atrocious. And it's it's still, you know, again, it's still going on now. So um, one of the questions I have, and I'm asking a little bit of, in, in a way um, just to explore this a, a, a bit more is I've asked the question of, you know, what's the role of, of art? And I would just say, you know, your 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 investigative work in your creation is a work of art. But, you know, the research, um, what is what is its role um, art's role, you think, in uh, disrupting, you know, the very racism that you're steeped in and having to report on it? Yeah, I hope that shining a light on these things, um, presenting evidence to all the naysayers who say it's it's not racist here, we're not racist, it's not unequal, you know, art, writing and, and other art forms are a way of presenting that to hopefully chip away at the ongoing denial and apathy that still really pervades our society. I think it's also a way to help people understand 
and get a little, you know, beyond what might be the the politics or the, uh, you know, their prejudices, their lack of knowledge, their ignorance, to build a bit of a bridge there and show them that when they're making these these comments or they're shuffling this stuff off, you know, they're what they're doing is awful because it's about other human beings. So when they say, oh, well, that girl should have taken responsibility for her actions, she shouldn't have been hitchhiking. You know, you tell that person the girl's story. This is a 15-year-old who who was on her way to see her friends. And and that that seems to, that changes people. It has the, the potential to anyway. Yeah, and 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 thanks for that too. Um, we're speaking with Jessica McDermott, and um, for for listeners, um, we did have a, a something rather than nothing a podcast episode in the past with Rosalie Fish, uh, which broached the um, issue of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, in in North America. Um, and why Rosalie Fish, you know, who's a runner, was doing that. And, of course, the protest symbol of the the red paint on her face was something that was striking for me and actually caught my attention and, and brought me to greater uh, awareness. And so now we have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Jessica McDermott, who, uh, again, wrote the book uh, Highway of Tears, and um, and also have a nice uh, correlation here, Jessica. I want to ask you about um, uh, after interviewing you, I'll be interviewing um, the incredibly gifted, wonderful artist uh, Kim uh, Gucci, uh, singer, and also created the design for the book cover. I was wondering if just to make you know make that connection, can you talk about? your work uh, with Kim and how it relates to um, uh, the book. Sure. So I met Kim in um, 2016. There was a memorial walk down the length of the highway organized by Brenda Wilson, who's the, the sister of one of the murdered girls from Smithers. And so I walked the highway with Brenda and two other women did the whole distance and then in all the various communities as people were were able available they joined in so on the last day which was day 17 i believe uh brenda had put out a call for the last leg to have some volunteers come and and cover some of the miles so kim had come with some friends and done that uh so we had met then and then stayed in in contact and she was uh, coming to smithers to play some musical events and stayed uh, at my mom's house where i was also living at the time and they became friends and over the years you know i was really honored to meet her mom and we became close and when it came time to there was discussions about the cover of the book i had felt really strongly for a long time that i wanted art uh, as opposed to so many stories about the highway of tears you see the picture of the the mountains and the lonely little road going through the forest and i knew i didn't want that uh and i thought that art by a local first nations artist would be really spectacular and i don't know that i even knew kim really did much visual art i mean she she was much more out there as a as a singer and songwriter but she had brought a, a piece of artwork as a thank you to my mom for letting her stay one time. And I saw it and went, oh, wow. Oh, and, sure. 
Yeah. Welled up courage for weeks. <laughs> I was so scared to ask her. And uh, and then sent her like a shy little Facebook message and said, oh, you know, what do you think? Would you do this? And she said yes. And I was incredibly excited and honored. And then she, I only was just found this out recently, and she'll tell the story more, but we didn't really work together on what the art would be. She was in touch with the publisher and a designer for the publisher. And so I was sort of frantically going through edits and stuff. And they had this whole other process going on. And then I got, uh, I got uh, the PDF of it. My editor sent it and said, you know, this is what they've come up with. What do you think? And I just I, like sat there and cried with happiness and sadness and I mean it's such a powerful image and I was just so blown away it is a beautiful image and um yeah thanks for sharing that um uh the book Highway of Tears the cover um uh put together by Kim Gucci will be a future guest on something rather than nothing uh truly a beautiful uh image beautiful artwork uh, one question I ask all guests uh, Jessica is what is art interesting question and it's really fun to actually get to talk about some of these things and you know think about them um, so I put some thought into this because you had warned me and <laughs> <laughs> you know I think it's a universal language it's sort of like mathematics it's a way that we can communicate and that we can reach across all the divides that we build up between us, um, you know, as we, we share and we reflect the world as we see it and we absorb the world as other people see it, um, you know, and ultimately it's, it's something that brings us together and makes us feel less alone in the world. That's a powerful thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's that that's that's wonderful. Um, yeah, I ask each guest that, and it's I think it's a fun one to answer because I think everybody thinks about art, and then when they're reminded that they think so much about art, it, it kind of gives you a permission to to answer the question. Um, I was I, I had mentioned to you I think maybe before the podcast how influenced I was by a book called The Art of Asking uh, by Amanda Palmer. And it was just her kind of unabashed. If she felt she wanted to extend like the question and find out something, she would ask the question and just got beyond not asking the question, though it's not an easy process, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of bravery both in asking and answering questions. And, and I appreciate your, your indulgence um, in it. Um, I enjoyed thinking about it because I thought, you know, I get I get really wrapped up in day to day things and what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And and so often there's not enough time where you're metaphorically or maybe literally wandering, wandering through a forest and looking at light coming through the trees and droplets of water on leaves and just letting your your brain go and thinking, you know. Yeah, that's the art part of it. Um, yeah, it's good, good, good process, a healthy process. So, um, uh, so Jessica, um, I wanna, I wonder if you just indulge me in just going back a bit, uh, just to make sure 
um, we kind of convey a little bit more of the story of Highway of Tears in Missing and Murdered uh, Indigenous Women, uh, MMIW, um, uh, Women and Girls, uh, of course. Um, and I think it's uh, a lot of people are learning about this. And there's I know there's been some swells of interest both in Canada and the United States at times gauging from public uh, public awareness or interest that it's been growing and waning. Um, I find it such an, an important and it's such a glaring issue that I haven't been able to look away from it uh, since I encountered it. Um, and so anytime I have a little bit of a space on the podcast to just kind of convey, you know, the story, I, I, I think it's worth it, even though it is a difficult one. Um, one of the difficulties I'm sure you encountered uh, in writing that book was, um, I believe you said that all the cases that you covered within the book are still unsolved. Is that correct? Yeah. There's there's some... Um... They were never really included uh, on the Highway of Tears list, though they took place in the area that, that have been solved. But the ones that I focused on are all unsolved cases. And uh, amongst these amongst these cases, I mean, uh, you, the, the book goes into depth and, and really personalizes both. You know, you, you make strong connect, connections, Jessica, with the people that you're talking to and you really do justice uh, to the story and a very difficult story to tell. Um, but you make these connections. Now, in general, these these are cases where, you know, girls, young women um, were, you know, just going somewhere or uh, maybe walking or along this along this highway, this long stretch, and would simply disappear, and there wouldn't be much attention paid to it, or invest true investigation, or any of that process. Um, pretty much with each of these cases, isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah. I mean, circumstances uh, surrounding disappearances vary a lot, case by case, as does. I think the investigations, though, as you pointed out, because they are still open investigations, they're not solved. We don't really know exactly what was or wasn't done. Um, but generally speaking, yes. And I thought structurally it was it was probably tough for you to tell tell the story because you didn't. You just had to tell what happened, and it, it's so caught up in you know frustrating you know manifestations of, of racism of people not knowing, people not caring, and just trying to bring attention to these cases that were, uh, you know, you know not solved or just not followed up upon. Um, I really want to thank you, you know, for for your for your courage. Um, in, in, in doing that work. And I know how difficult, because I'm sure you really wanted to get the story right. And as a reader, as far as what I know, I felt you got the story right and, and, tr and tried to honor, um, uh, you know, honor the story. Um, I had a different question, uh, and it's one I've asked guests uh, recently. Um, can you uh, mention who or what made you who you are now? Yeah, 
it's I'm not sure who I am now. Uh, I am always changing it. it and I, and I think that's the one of the many really exciting things about being alive is that it's a journey. You never stop and you never stop evolving. But um, to answer your question a little bit, actually answer it, you know, I think it's a, it's probably a mix of, I mean, certainly my family has had and has a, a profound impact on me. Um, they're people who believe in right and wrong and believe in doing the right thing, sort of no matter the cost sometimes. Um, you know, the principle is a really important thing and also kindness and compassion and humility is a really important thing. Um, I think the worst thing you could do in my family is ever talk highly about yourself. <laughs> it's like a Scottish thing or Irish thing. You will get cut down in five seconds. Um, but but certainly my family. And then also, you know, they supported and encouraged my my writing and my need to always be seeking and always be moving. You know, a lot of people when I was young, well, still now, actually, but uh, I left home quite young, did one year of university, and then that was boring. So I moved to Ireland and then I went to university and then I went to, you know, and I've sort of been bouncing all over the world as much as possible for my whole life. And nobody has ever said, you know, when are you going to settle down or you're doing it wrong or anything like that? There's always been huge support for for uh, my life adventures and then also my my pursuits in writing. And, and then I think experiences, you know, growing up, I read, as I've said, I read a ton and largely a lot of my world was what I, I read. You know, I, I felt like authors were who had been dead for 50 years were my best friends and certainly my role models. And that was really informative when I was younger and, and still is now, um, though now I, you know, I can be out in the world and I actually know some writers and stuff like that, which, you know, you don't really when you're growing up in a very small town in northern BC. Um, but yeah, I think those two factors are enormous. And then, and then everything that you experience as you live changes you. And, and you know, I think I'm lucky to say so far, I feel like things, even, you know, bad things increase my understanding of myself, but also other people. Uh, and I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah. And I, I think, um, in here, in hearing you talk and talking about, you know, your family and the support that was there. I mean, I think it just, it seems to me that that's just really pivotal. I've enjoyed that. And, you know, in, within my life and, you know, where you have the support to discover, be whatever, you know, who you are and what paths you want to follow that can make a world of difference just as far as what you see as possible in the world. So I, I, I can hear how important that is to you. It is, you know, and I do, and I so credit my, my parents, like neither of them were world travelers or writers or, you know, they, they were both from small towns that always lived in small towns, mainly in Northern BC. And so I mean, I, I used to sort of wonder if I was like dropped by a stork or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were my mom tells me now that when when I had gone to Africa, a lot of people and, you know, her friends and stuff would say, oh, how could you let her go? Aren't you worried? And, you know, my mom's response was something like, it, you know, keeping her here or discouraging her from doing 
what she needs to do would be far worse than, you know, supporting her as she goes to live in Sierra Leone for a year. And, you know, we trust her judgment and we know she has a head on her shoulders. And so we're we're happy about it. You know, I think she sometimes had gritted teeth when she said that. But uh, but certainly that was the message I got. I mean, that that they were ever even really worried is, you know, they told me years later after I got back. <laughs> so that's I mean, that's huge. And it wasn't a natural thing for them. And I, I just yeah, I am so grateful to them for for that and many other things, too. That's uh, yeah, that's so important. Um, Jessica, a couple more questions. Um, just just as far as, uh, you know, listeners, uh, you know, there's other aspects of, of your work within um investigative journalism and things you've written could you just kind of give a like a just a little bit of a like a summary of some of the other type of uh research in in articles you've written uh in in journalism i so i worked uh before setting off on on working on a book i was at the toronto star for for a couple of years and you know a lot of that job was newspaper report like pretty straight up newspaper reporting but but you certainly got the opportunity to, you know, we would say like write the hell out of something once in a while. And that was pretty great. Uh, and then prior to that, when I was in West Africa, I did some freelancing for the star and for some other places. And, you know, it was largely uh, features. Some was breaking news, but, but a, a lot, you know, features where you would go and spend a lot of time with certain people and you would try and relay this really different world and really different lives to North Americans. Um, and I did a lot of fiction and nonfiction there that was sort of based there. I mean, none of the fictions, a lot of the nonfiction hasn't been published either. Uh, and if I go back to it, I can see why. But uh, but yeah, it was really an exploration of a really different place and different culture and um, different history. And, and yeah. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. I know you've done, uh, I've, I've looked uh, on your on your on your website, you've done a a lot of different work in your experiences uh, there's there seems to be a lot to it. I'm wondering if your experience answers the big question of the podcast of uh, why is there something rather than nothing <laughs> can you help me out you know I don't know and maybe it does sort of relate because I think it's it's one of those questions that is unanswerable everyone will have a different answer there's different explanations. There's different beliefs. Ultimately, it's always a mystery. And that's sort of the beauty. And that's sort of the parallel to you know, what is what is truth and who are we and all these questions where it's it's a matter of perspective. And I think that the the magic in the world comes from learning about perspectives and developing your own and coming to understand others and so it would be terrible actually if this question was answerable it's it's the quest to figure it out that actually becomes the meaning i really like your i really like your answer i like i never answer my own question but i will say that one of the things i like about uh buddhist philosophy on this question they just say, throw it out. Don't bother answering it. It's useless to look at. And I, I, I like that kind of dynamic to the the, the question itself. And um, I think it's a great one. I really enjoyed um, 
your answer. Uh, Jessica, can you tell the listeners where they can connect with your book, with your material, what you would like to share with them um, so they can uh, they can find you uh, on your platforms? Yeah, so I have a website, which is just jessicamcdermott.com, uh, and it links to various work, and it links to um, where you can get the book. Um, and I would just encourage everyone to go to their local bookstores, especially now, uh, because Amazon's doing very well and local businesses are struggling. So <laughs> please go to your local bookstore. Yeah, yeah. Or and, the library. Or the library, right. I think I might have encountered the, your book uh, through the library and they lend out uh, audiobooks because I listen mm -hmm. to the book. Um, and... Um, yeah, just thank you so much, Jessica. I mean, it's 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 been a real pleasure to talk to you. And again, I want to thank you for your hard work and advocacy and your sharing of um, uh, the story of the Highway of Tears. And also very excited uh, to kind of connect this conversation to the next conversation with uh, your friend and collaborator, uh, Kim Gucci. But Jessica McDermott, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you so much uh, for having me and for, for the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye. You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing.